Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal RX. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. Today we have Rhiannon Hardingham with us. And for those of you who don't know Rhiannon, she is an experienced fertility naturopath, presenter, practitioner, mentor, and author, and a lead member of the specialist team of multidisciplinary practitioners at Melbourne's Fertile Ground Health Group. Rhiannon is committed to the successful integration of natural and conventional medicine, frequently working alongside Melbourne's top fertility doctors to achieve the best outcomes for her patients. As a testament to this, Rhiannon is routinely invited to present on the topic of collaborative patient care to medical professionals and naturopaths alike. After over 15 years of experience in the area of infertility and IVF support, Rhiannon provides professional mentoring for naturopaths in both group and individual settings. This highly specialised area is outside the scope of standard naturopathic education, and as such, her Reaper and Hormonal Masterclass Mentoring Program at Fertile Ground Health Group is a rare opportunity for naturopaths to further their skills. Alongside her colleagues at Fertile Ground, Rhiannon has co-authored the book, Create a Fertile Life. This comprehensive preconception healthcare guide for both patients and practitioners has become a staple for those wishing to overcome infertility and prepare for a healthy pregnancy. So thank you very much, Rhiannon. We are so happy to have you here with both Julianne and myself today on the Tech Talk podcast. Thanks so much. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. It's it's fantastic that you're with us and with all your experience in the fertility space, ATMS, so the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, is lucky enough to have you presenting a lecture for them as part of their upcoming fertility symposium and you'll actually be covering male fertility. So considering that the male factor is thought to contribute to around 50% of infertility presentations, Mm -hmm. could you maybe start us off with touching on why this very important male aspect can actually be overlooked when we're as clinicians when we're addressing the fertility of a couple it is a a great question to start with and i could probably just talk about that for 45 minutes but i'll try to condense it a little bit uh it's such a great question because a it's absolutely true i think at uh, many levels of clinical practice naturopaths general practitioners, as in GPs, even fertility specialists will uh, often, I would say routinely, overlook the contribution of the male. But on the uh, flip side of that, from a scientific perspective, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that A, men are a significant contributor to fertility, duh, but B, that actually uh, their contribution is becoming more and more problematic uh, really every year and also that dietary, or at least every decade, and also that dietary, lifestyle and and environmental factors significantly influence um, male factor fertility and can uh, positively influence their contribution if addressed properly. So it's really um, science has uh, no 
doubt about it whatsoever. The researchers are absolutely passionate and this literature is presented in uh, routinely published in mainstream scientific fertility literature. Um, but clinically, a real blind spot. And I think that probably the easiest thing to um, drill that down to is that honestly, men can routinely be uh, clinically uh, a little more difficult to um, uh, work with. They may not be as enthusiastic. And often, of course, they're not the primary patient. So they're not the ones presenting, even if it is a male factor issue, uh, still uh, the majority of the time it will be the female partner in the relationship presenting as the patient. So, you know, there are a few hurdles that I think we need to be um, cognizant to um, actually overcome if we want to be able to help that couple conceive. Mm. Hopefully with practitioners that specialise in this space such as yourself, um, presenting in more and more webinars or more and more conferences across the globe, really, but especially then that awareness might come to the fore a little bit more, mm-hmm. hopefully. Uh, I think research, you know, practice take that little bit of time to catch up to that, to that type of research in so many areas of health. And this is obviously one, but yeah, I think it's so important. So this is why it's so great that you're speaking up on it. Mm-hmm. Now, on that same line, do you have any tips about encouraging female fertility patients to consider the male factor during their preconception care. So they've come, the females come to see you, say, for an example, Mm -hmm. how can you encourage that patient to kind of bring their male partner in on this a bit more? Yeah, well, I do have a few strategies around that. You know, of course, uh, sometimes it can be as simple as, I think we need to see both of you because, Mm -hmm. you know, it takes two to tango. And they will actually often, women will often say that, oh, I'm so glad you said that because no one seems to be interested in in him at all. And they will sometimes even say, he's really been waiting for somebody to show interest in him. So, you know, some of them are really happy to come to the party and be involved. You know, of course, we'll also have those women who will say, oh, he's really not interested. And then most of them will be somewhere in between. But if there is resistance on the part of the guy, I will just really talk about the uh, integral um, and uh, simple nature of having a thorough and um, uh, reliable semen analysis um, completed on them because it's it's far from exhaustive. However, it is um, a significant insight into his potential contribution. There's nothing um, comparable from a female fertility perspective. She could have 30 uh, intrusive investi- investigations and we still wouldn't know as much about her egg quality as we know about his sperm quality from one non-invasive, maybe embarrassing, but not invasive <laughs> test. So, you know, it's really worth the effort and the uh, $500 it would cost for an um, out-of-pocket um, test that includes a DNA fragmentation, just to be sure. Yeah. And I think also takes a bit of pressure off the relationship if you ask me like I think you know if they both know where each other are coming from and they have they're really well informed in that way I think it's it's a supportive way to kind of help their reproductive future or potential anyway absolutely and I think it helps also for them you know for me to be the one giving him the direction and the bad news if there is any (laughs) 
rather than rather than her. And you know, I just can't tell you how many guys in the past who have been reluctant to start with, you know, other ones in the end, uh, emailing me photos of the baby and you know, thanking me. You know, they it, 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 sometimes it really just takes somebody with the know-how and compassion for their resistance to um, you know help them to overcome that and to be able to become dads, which is ultimately what they want. Course. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. What a privileged position to be in, hey? That's yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Just jumping to some herbal medicine talk now. Do you use many herbal medicines as part of your treatment plan in male fertility? And are there certain classes of herbs or specific phytomedicines that you're often reaching for to support their reproductive health or their fertility status? Yeah, absolutely. So probably the most well-known one, of course, for male fertility is tribulus. Uh, fairly well researched and, you know, certainly uh, beneficial for men with low testosterone. Um, it's also thought to promote 5-alpha reductase activity, meaning that it also promotes DHT, DHT the more potent androgen. Uh, and of course, Korean ginseng also well regarded for its testosterone enhancing properties and certainly more indicated for those um, individuals that might have uh, adrenal depletion as well, of course. And uh, Damiana in a, in a very different way from a mechanism perspective, but absolutely uh, testosterone promoting and really good for those guys who might have uh, some uh, anxiety and or depression alongside their fertility. That's great that you're describing the different sort of nuances of, of these individual herbal medicines that maybe fall under the same class of being a male reproductive tonic or a, you know, a, a herb that could enhance different sperm parameters or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, when we spoke previously, you much like Julianne and and myself ran and really love getting into the mechanistic side of how our plant medicines work mm -hmm. in order to more specifically match them to a patient and prescribe them. So could you give us maybe a little bit of an in-depth example between two different herbs like say Damiana and Tribulus where you're trying to choose, uh, choose a herb to match the patient and you're looking at the mechanism of action? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is, it's so integral, isn't it? And I try to uh, impart this with practitioners when I'm mentoring or presenting uh, regarding exactly what the indications for the herbs are based on that um, biochemistry and mechanism of action rather than just a um, presentation or a picture. That traditional side of things is really important but I think that we can be a little bit more specific if we take more information on board and so a, a good example Damiana and Tribulus you know Damiana is um, an aromatase inhibitor meaning that it helps to uh, minimize the conversion of testosterone to estrogen so for men I will be doing estrogen testing if they're testing testosterone is low and if their testosterone is low but their estrogen is higher than I want it to be then Damiana is an excellent uh, uh, contribution to helping to increase their testosterone and 
um, I, and, and hopefully shunt it more towards the testosterone DHT pathway than the estrogen pathway. So you're just redirecting that um, uh, that conversion pathway for them. Of course, that can be heavily influenced by uh, obesity and alcohol or adipose tissue and, and alcohol consumption. So of course, uh, addressing those factors as well will significantly improve their testosterone. But herbally, that intervention can be really successful for them. Whereas uh, tribulus, you know, I, I, I wouldn't use um, tribulus specifically if there was high estrogen because tribulus also can promote estrogen. Or I would at least be using Damiana with the tribulus to try to mitigate that testosterone to estrogen um, conversion. But tribulus, of course, helps to promote the testosterone levels itself. And as I said, that DHT conversion, that 5-alpha reductase activity and that DHT conversion. So, you know, really looking at what the um, mechanism is, as much as you can glean from their pathology, but there's, there's quite a lot you can actually glean from it if you're not looking for. That's an excellent explanation. And I think that, you know, it's even the fact that you can combine herbs in a certain way to match the biochemistry, just even drills it down a little bit further mm -hmm. and, you know, we can pull from the research and really apply it, like with um, tribulus being quite modulating with the testosterone. Mm -hmm. And I think even the way you explained it there kind of, for me, is putting some pieces together about perhaps why in certain studies tribulus had different outcomes um, yeah. due to the mechanism. So really interesting stuff and probably a great insight into some of the clinical gems that practitioners get when they sign up for your mentoring program. So, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so you mentioned earlier about testing and sperm testing and, and investigations that can be performed. Mm -hmm. So when we are doing, when we're clinically assessing our male patients, that sperm testing is something that you utilise. Are there any other testing parameters that you utilize to determine a male patient's fertility status? And do you find that this testing is adequate for your assessment? Mm -hmm. I would say that uh, for most of the guys that I see with the semen, semen analysis issue, a thorough pathology assessment alongside that, almost always, almost without exception, um, brings up an, an explanation for what's going on for him. So of course it will involve a thorough hormonal assessment, uh, certainly testosterone, but also the gonadotrophins, FSH and the LH of course will show whether or not there is a um, primary testicular failure issue. Estradiol and prolactin are really important for interpre interpreting uh, factors that are influencing testosterone and spermatogenesis. Uh, but further from there, of course, um, metabolic function so radically key for spermatogenesis. Um, iron studies, iron overload uh, affects spermatogenesis at the pituitary, um, at the testes, and also damages um, sperm themselves because, it, uh, because iron is, of course, so oxidative. So just uh, ensuring that, that they don't have hemochromatosis. I mean, the number of patients that, you know, we end up coming across who have undiagnosed hemochromatosis uh, is, you know, interesting itself. 
or just iron overload. Of course, zinc and copper, um, liver function, uh, and um, uh, always uh, really thorough methylation assessment, of course. There is just um, very little doubt that um, uh, high home, reversing a high homocysteine uh, almost, almost, almost always significantly improves a semen analysis result. Can I quickly just ask, with your hormone testing that you do, do you tend to use blood, saliva or urine or is there something that you prefer? Yeah, I use blood predominantly um, for a number of reasons. I, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with it. Um, I've done uh, the majority of my mentoring over the years with Rachel Arthur, so you know, I've learnt a lot from her around um, blood pathology interpretation. But also really importantly for my practice, my patients are heavily medicalised and overwhelmingly I am uh, working alongside their specialists. Uh, and so I want to be uh, communicating with them in a language that they both understand and respect. So from, a, uh, you know, it, it's really important that I'm very competent with blood pathology interpretation in particular. And it just, it does, it, it works for me. Yeah, it's, I mean, we've just gone into a lot of pathology testing, which is actually really important. And I think it can overwhelm practitioners at time. And I think it can be really costly for patients. So yeah. it's really confirming to hear you say that you're working alongside the medical practitioners and working with what you also have, you know, which is, I mean, many patients in the fertility space, I know for myself, you, we were tested a lot, you know, so I think, um, yeah. That's really reassuring. And I also, as Kristen mentioned before, we are massive pathology nerds mm -hmm. and pathophysiology right. nerds. Mm -hmm. So with the scope of herbal medicines that we have, I mean, even if you look at mushrooms, for example, like, gosh, there's like a dozen mushrooms on the market. I mean, we have eight or nine of them as single mm -hmm. uses, but understanding the nuances of these herbs and, and their mechanisms, which you find through mechanistic studies, mm -hmm. can be really helpful in matching. Yeah. So. I think you've probably answered this question anyway, but just to sum up, do you find that that pathology testing is exceptionally helpful with regards to matching your herbal medicine? And perhaps the way I'm thinking about it is gives you levels of priority. And if there's any kind of examples of patient types or anything you've seen there that mm -hmm. maybe you could explain to us a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, without that pathology testing, you wouldn't know, for example, if a guy had uh, high prolactin, and if he has high prolactin, then uh, if you, you know, if you're not getting that prolactin down, then you're not actually going to improve his testosterone with tribulus. Yeah. So if he's got high prolactin, you'd be thinking about using herbs like rhodiola, maybe even vitex for men, uh, to have that dopaminergic activity to get that prolactin down. And of course, to look at other things that might be in, uh, influencing that prolactin like cortisol. Um, but, you know, without that insight, you can give him tribulus for months and months and not see the improvement that you mm. need but all of those pieces of the puzzle and yes it can be a little bit expensive from a testing perspective but overwhelmingly I don't I rarely experience um challenges with GPs and specialists agreeing to do testing like as long as it's as long as you understand I think the 
um, got the Medicare guidelines uh, and you're respecting the, uh, the paradigm in which the, the doctor works, then most of the bloods will be covered by Medicare. And then I'll always say to my patient, maybe a couple of hundred dollars out of pocket for those um, retests that maybe are not um, considered necessary by Medicare, but for me, are important to show that we're tweaking things and uh, effectively and um, you know maybe a, a few other things like you know we just want to do a, a full TFT rather than just a TSH for you because your TSH is higher than I want it to be but not justifiable through Medicare but I'll start everybody with their GP or their specialist uh, and get as much done through Medicare and of course the other benefit to that is you can come up with some red flags that you weren't expecting and you want um, collegial medical support and oversight in managing that patient if actually uh, there's a, um, a significant risk to their health in other ways that, that is eliminated through this. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, beautiful explanation. And I think being able to adapt to and, and individualise our treatment for the patient that's in front of us is just such a huge advantage of us being naturopaths. Yeah, and I just want to touch on a really important point you made, and I know Rachel Arthur spoke about this at our NHAA conference this year around that Medicare, yeah, the paradigm to work within. And, yeah. you know, I work closely with doctors and so does Kristen because of the types of patients we see. It's part of our collaborative care model and clearly in fertility, that's an important space too. So I, I just want to thank you for kind of reiterating that because it is a really important area that naturopaths need to dive in, respect, own it almost and work with it. So I think, um, you know, there's lots of areas that people can, practitioners can reach out to learn more about that. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure, would that be something you go over in your mentoring program as well in that space? So we certainly do, um, you know, I certainly do focus uh, on it in um, regards to fertility assessment. Absolutely. Um, right. More yeah. generally, I, you know, I would always um, suggest doing Rachel Arthur's masterclass regarding the pathology assessment. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool. I would say the new gold standard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then patients end up with so much confidence because everybody knows what they're doing and they're all working together and they're on their side. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's like a superpower, actually, being able to interpret uh, even standard pathology. You know, so many patients will come to you with just one marker out in their FBE uh, or their electrolyte panel and um, you know they'll say oh the doctor said this was nothing and you can explain why the doctor might be saying it's nothing in a genuine fashion or you can say well they might have said that from this perspective uh, but from our perspective we can optimize that we can we can see that come back into range you know for this reason but you know it just um you just, you just need the knowledge obviously don't you to be able to to give them that confidence and the more you work with on that level, the more confidence mm -hmm. that you gain. I certainly love working mm -hmm. with blood tests now, but when I first came into practice, it was quite daunting. And I thought, I don't know, they look fine. <laughs> you really? Yes. Yeah. Well, we, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I graduated, it was, I'm not even sure we were taught how to read and iron studies although that's a funny thing to say because iron studies of course are quite complicated but uh but you know i'm not sure that we were taught i honestly am not sure that we were taught anything at all so it all had to be postgraduate learning for me but yeah now it's 
it's um you know now I'm mostly just looking through tests as I'm seeing the patient you know in front of me because it's really become absolute second nature yeah yeah and it's just another input for us you know we've got a clinical presentation we've got our testing we've got all these um, tools that we use to really like you said optimize what Mm -hmm. we both with herbal medicine and supplementation lifestyle recommendations what we're recommending for our patients so Mm. fantastic and I think you know with that individualization and and adapting our our recommendations to our patient that can even extend to the delivery method of our herbs so Mm -hmm. uh, we know for our liquids we've got both hydroethanolic extracts available and glycytracks Mm -hmm. where glycerin is used as a carrier for the herb uh, I was wondering, since you work in fertility and, you know, in this space, it's sometimes recommended to avoid alcohol in different circumstances. Is there a time that you reach for glycytrax mm-hmm. over hydroethanolic extracts? And, and could you sort of tell us when that might be? Yeah, well, we, we do. I'm really lucky, of course, to work at Fertile Ground Health Group where we have a beautiful uh, dispensary including a whole range of uh, the glycotract herbs and we do just routinely use them for our patients from the point that they may be pregnant onwards so especially with our IVF patients from transfer uh, onwards uh, and uh, certainly for other patients once they are pregnant obviously all of the herbs that we might want to use um, and of course the caveat on this is you know you're only using herbal medicine in pregnancy if it's necessary risk benefit analysis and you know it's safe but you know let's assume it is for the for the um you know for this context uh if you're if all of the herbs aren't available in the glycotract then i would combine it with a little bit of an alcohol extract but i'm con- then confident that they're not getting um, the alcohol intake that would uh, become problematic for their, um, uh, you know, for, the, for their for their pregnancy. But overwhelmingly, we we use them almost exclusively in in pregnancy, and I think we you know we probably have a good um, fifteen to twenty herbs there, and there's probably not much more than that we would use in pregnancy, honestly. Yeah, I think, Rhiannon, as herbalists in modern practice, we are so lucky to have different um, carrier types or different ways, different modes to be able to deliver our herbal extracts to people, whether it's powdered, hydroethanolic, glycotracts, we're tablet form. Tea. Tea, yep, we're so very lucky um, and we can utilise all of that. And just to kind of finish up here, you know, you are a fantastic expert in this fertility space and we're so appreciative of you sharing your knowledge so generously. I just wonder if there's anything else you'd like to leave us or your listeners with. Mm. Uh, I guess that, um, you know, uh, I think something that is uh, important for naturopaths in general these days is to uh, acknowledge that IVF is becoming more and more commonplace uh, and that's simply, it, it's not actually because infertility rates are increasing dramatically, it's actually because the referral uh, guidelines and network is becoming tighter and tighter. Uh, but what that means, when, when you look at the numbers of IVF cycles being undertaken in Australia every year, it jumps exponentially. 
And what that means, of course, is that the naturopath in general practice is far more likely to come into um, contact or see in their clinic patients with some minor, seemingly minor fertility challenges ending up in IVF fairly quickly. And, you know, I think it's a really important area to either um, skill up in so just have some basic competence in so that you can confidently support those patients and to get the mentoring support that you need or or to refer them although whenever practitioners reach out to me and say you know can I refer this patient to you I always say wouldn't you prefer just to do mentoring what, what a great opportunity for you to expand your skills and this patient will get great care at the same time but it's just more and more common and it is so integral um, for this highly medicalised patient group that we just know the contraindications more than anything, but also the indications and uh, the best way to assess them and support their individual requirements. And just the impact that we can have on these um, patients is, is so profound both from a child health perspective with the preconception care side of things of course that we're all you know gratefully really familiar with due to the work of Francesca Nash um, but also uh, just the um, capacity to conceive at all I just know that I know without doubt that many of my patients really wouldn't have their babies today if it wasn't for particular herbs that we were able to give them you know vitex itself you know import uh, uh, responsible for countless babies in my practice but also um tribulus and and um, the broader steroidal saponin family uh sometimes it's really just being able to alter uh, a woman or a man's hormonal profile that then allows them to conceive within a couple of months and that being the most important thing when you know what you're looking for and then you apply the right herb uh it's it's so rewarding to then see pregnancies from there and to get the um, inbox flooded with baby photos yeah, that's such a special space to work in. It's not my calling, but I have utilised people such as yourself to mm-hmm. feed my child and it's, it is such a special and important space to work in. Um, if people wanted to reach out to you, Rhiannon, is that more so through your Fertile Ground contact, the website yeah. there? They can look that up. Great. Yeah, that's Great. right. Yep. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. There's a, a tab there for the education, um, but also they can just contact reception and be given my email address. Yeah, fantastic. I do want to reiterate how grateful we are to have you on our podcast. Um, This knowledge is so, so important, as you said, and I'm sure your lecture at ATMS conference is just going to be amazing. And as we said, understated as a general term in the medical world and even in our world probably, so to bring it to the forefront is um, such a great, great I guess, opportunity for everybody that's in that audience. So, Mm. again, thank you for your time and we wish you the best. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing uh, everybody in real life. Yeah. (laughs) Fingers crossed, very soon. (laughs) Thanks, Rhiannon. Thanks so much.